This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1, a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. Hello, Hardwood Knox family. If you're confused because it's a different voice doing the intro, it's me, Adam Frommel, here with my first or second episode, really, in a new co-host capacity, which is a, a throwback to old times. I'm joined, as always, by Dan Favalli, the longtime co-host, and we are continuing our series where we're looking back at the last decade of NBA basketball for each franchise and ranking the top 10 players. Before we get started, a shout out as always to our sponsor, betonline.ag. You'll hear from them later in the episode, but before we get there, we have to ask Dan, how are you doing? Oh man, it feels weird to be on this end of it. I know, uh, it's strange, isn't it? I like that you call this a new throwback. So this is your second episode in official capacity of your second go-round, because we recorded, I think you were on for the first hundred. I don't know, we're, we're closing on a 400 episodes, by the way. That's remarkable. Yes. It's it's still it's come so long since our, our YouTube days of hoping for, for twenty listeners and rambling about the latest trades and how it impacted teams that were entirely unrelated to those teams involved in trades. Hopefully we'll get to those twenty listeners one day though. We're still we're still striving. I am doing fantastic though. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, but you're copping out on the uh, the answer there. Why's that? I feel like I always try to like throw it to some interesting story or weird thing happening in my life, and I, I need you to do the same here now that we've switched I can, roles. I can totally gripe about something that is... You were just complaining about acorns. Like well, That's yeah, pretty interesting. I'm pretty sure that squirrels are attacking the office slash shoe closet slash gym, like home gym that I'm in right now, and that's pretty much what I think is happening. So that is my one complaint. If you hear pelting in the background, uh, it's the squirrels. They're coming after me, and I have no idea what I did to them because acorns shouldn't be falling in the middle of July. I mean, look, we already have dogs barking every once in a while. Shout out to Wade and Thor. So we might as well have squirrels make their appearance on the podcast as well. Yeah, your dogs are a little bit quieter than mine. Shout out well, to Alder I, and Aspen. I have, I have one of them laying right next to me as we're recording. So who knows what's going to happen? I have Wade. Who do you have? I have Alder. All right, we'll see if either one of them decides to make a guest appearance on the podcast. If anyone wants to make bets, place them now. <laughs> so Nick's basketball. It's a... Uh, it's going to be a moving rough on. One. <laughs> it's going to be a rough one. This, uh, I, I think the the only appropriate way to start is with the joke ballot that we deleted. And just to remind everyone of the process, these composite rankings that we're going over 
are based on three different segments of the voting. We have the fan vote, which has been tabulated into, into one set of top tens. We have my ballot, we have Dan's. And we combine those to look at the composite rankings. And sometimes we have to throw out one obviously joking ballot. Uh, that happened a little more often for New York, which Shocker. I don't think should be particularly surprising. We had one ballot. I won't say who it came from, even though I know who had Frank Natilakina in all 10 spots. That was me. We Shout had, out me. We had another, I don't know who this one came from, who had Alan Houston in all 10 spots. And then we had one. I'm inclined to br- believe that it was Alan Houston, by the way, or someone heretofore related to Alan Houston. It could be. <laughs> and then we had one that had, and I, I, the only way to present this is just to, to read through their ballot. In first place, we had Zion Williamson. Second, Kyrie Irving. Third, Kevin Durant. Fourth, this ballot. Fifth is totally a joke. Sixth, but I laughed at the seventh, Jimmy Butler vote. Eighth, for the Lakers. Ninth, so throw this out. Tenth, but I thought it would create a nice conversation about the time when Knicks fans were asking if these three guys could play together. And that was just like, we got we both got a huge kick out of that because that's like the perfect way to summarize this last decade of Knicks basketball, where it's like, we're going to go get these stars. Oh, wait, we're the Knicks. No, we're not. <laughs> yeah, uh, that has been my favorite ballad to date. You read it. It was one that came in early. We were talking about it before we did the Pelicans podcast. Just absolutely spectacular. And it's wild to think, but fast forward about 11 months, and everyone sort of, maybe, maybe only 10, or rewind 10 months, excuse me, uh, because we knew how the draft lottery had shaken out by some point. But the, that was the actual question, or was it, are the Knicks going to use their their draft pick if it's Zion Williamson to trade for Anthony Davis that he could play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving? And then you just look back. They signed Julius Randle. They signed Taj Gibson. They signed Bobby Portis. They signed Alfred Payton, Wayne Ellington. It was uh, it was very it was a very Knicks type of progress progression there. And so it look, I think some fans are probably tired Knicks fans anyway of the Knicks being dumped on, they just deserve it so hard and so relentlessly that I just can't make any apologies for it. Look, sometimes when you strike out in free agency, you just have to power forward. Wow. How long, I'm really proud of that one. How I just long did came it up you? with it on the spot. I was really proud of that. <laughs> I'll be sure to put that in the promo tweet. The, the one Please nice do. thing we can say, though, and we won't get there immediately, but the top like five, five point five, as we put it at the beginning of the podcast, it's not so bad. Like it's not terrible. It, yeah, it, it's it's not. I mean, there was definitely a unanimous number one and some prominent names just behind him. Uh, but the back end where we're starting is a uh, is a little rough. So we we had thirteen people appear in one of the three top tens. Uh, three of them obviously uh, just missed the cut because we're only focusing on ten players. But those three are Iman Shumpert, who who finished 10th for the fans, Kylo Quinn, who was 10th on my ballot, and Danilo Gallinari, who was 10th on yours. I think this sort of highlights, Danilo Gallinari for me at least, how I approach this, particularly towards the bottom, where I wasn't really concerned about theirness as much as I was impact or the significance of their tenure, because you know I'm not going to cry about leaving Tim Hardaway Jr. off because he had two different stints with the team or I'm not going to, you know, Lance Thomas is someone else that I consider ultimately booted. And I went with someone with a smaller sample. Daniel Gallinari though, absolutely belongs on in the top 10. I am sorry. Played in more games than a Jeremy Lin did this decade. 
he was the centerpiece of that Carmelo Anthony trade in which the Knicks gave up way, way too much. I'm probably just bullish because I was bullish on him at the time and looking at what he turned into, which was a fringe all-star NBA player consistently. And I know injuries have derailed a few campaigns, but he is someone who is just, I, I, I say this a lot in this podcast, but he kind of straddles that line between a from scratch scorer, but also this good offensive compliment. And so that's why I've always enjoyed his game. And that was, you know, the, the hardest player to give up in that package. But if you gave it up, if it was just him and some other like negligible stuff for Carmelo Anthony, but knowing what that trade really turned into and how it gutted the team, just absolutely awful deal. Still, he was the centerpiece of it. And I think he deserves some credit for, you know, at least headlining that package that brings back the player who's going to go down as fair or not one of the best Knicks players of the decade or one of the best Knicks, most impactful, recognizable Knicks players ever, even though Carmelo Anthony's time there wasn't too successful. So shout out to Neil Gallinari, one of my favorite NBA players of the era. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. For me, I, I wanted to give credit to Kylo Quinn. I thought you put it well before we started recording as we were talking about our ballots, like kind of a Mitchell Robinson light in that he made such a tremendous impact in the minutes that he did receive, but consistently seemed to get the short stick in the rotation. So only 13th in minutes played for the decade, but still made an impact whenever he was on the court. I considered a lot of different guys for that 10 spot. I mean, Landry Fields, Pablo Prigioni, Ennis Cantor, um, Danilo Gallinari, Shumpert. Uh, there were a bunch of, of possible names, but I just wanted to go with the guy who was the most effective of those while he was in New York, even if it didn't ever manifest into what we thought it could become. Um, we did have Jason Kidd actually checking in at number 10, and he was floated solely by you. Uh, he was tied for 12th with Frank Tilakina in the fan vote. I had him just outside my top 10. You had him a ninth, which was enough to get him placement in our composite top 10. I'm going to look, I, I, except for when, the Kristaps Porzingis rise was first happening in New York, that initial ascension from him. 2012-2013 is the last time it was really just fun to watch New York Knicks basketball. They were good. Um, they finished second in the Eastern Conference that season. They flamed out in the second round, and Jason Kidd was absolutely a part of that. I'm going to give you, this is, this is like sort of trivia, but not really. His true shooting percentage during that 12-game that playoff push I'm going to set it at 39, over or under? Under. Okay, it was 21.3. It was so he bad. He couldn't make anything, but it, it wasn't even that much better in the regular season. Like, he shot, like, 37% from the field that season and, what, like, 34% from three? Just, like, he was a good role player. Like, I get I get the nod to it being a fun era, but he I didn't get... He shot 35.1% from three, thank you very much, and 45.2% on twos. He's a legend. In the, uh, no, I'm... I totally agree with you, uh, just looking at the numbers, but de definitely what he did for that locker room, because it became apparent to the Knicks that Carmelo Anthony wasn't going to be that vocal leader. And the one thing I'll say about Melo, though, is he's, whether it's since then or just over his entire career, he's made a real effort to just like relate to the younger guys. And a lot of the players talk about how well he does. In every locker room he's been in since, there, there hasn't been an issue. He probably gets... The way he left Denver, that's going to give him a bad rap. And then the, the Jeremy Lin stuff was weird because he commented on that restricted free agent offer sheet and people, you know, he wasn't happy with Mike D'Antoni. That didn't help uh, either for him. But in, in the years after that, it seemed like the young players really gravitated toward him. Anyway, though, Jason Kidd felt like he was a good 
veteran presence for that locker room, for that team, gave them some effort on defense, gave them sort of this playmaking equilibrium in the offense when Carmelo Anthony didn't have the ball. And it was also sort of this like intercessor role where it wasn't just making sure everyone else was involved, but kind of making sure that Carmelo Anthony wasn't overbearing in certain spots. Uh, He definitely needed to be a more of an overwhelming contributor in the playoffs just based off how that went. And so I think he was sort of the, there were a lot of veterans on that team. Sheed, uh, Kurt Thomas, I, I think Jason Kidd probably just epitomizes what they all stood for more than anyone else. And so I threw him in there and I have, I have zero regrets about it. Hashtag no regrets. I don't think you need to have any regrets about it. I just, it's not the direction I was going just because I, I did think there were people who spent more time and made more on-court contributions. It's, it's hard to quantify what he added to the locker room and, and he did play for the most successful team of the decade. So there's no knocking him for any of that. I just, I found it difficult to put him over someone like Tim Hardaway Jr., who is checking in at number nine on our composite rankings. He was number nine for the fans and number nine for me. I hope he just missed the cut for you since he wasn't in the top 10. My initial nine and 10 were Tim Hardaway Jr. and Lance Thomas in that order. And then I decided to boot them for Gallo and Jason Kidd because I was... I thought I was waiting thereness too much. Yeah, uh, there there are so many directions you can go with this franchise that has um, struggled for the last decade. Like it's it's tough to it was really tough to fill out the back half of this ballot in general just because you you didn't have any obvious inclusions. Like how high do you put Jeremy Lin, who we're eventually going to get to just because of that brief insanity run? How do you weigh Jason Kidd? How do you weigh Tim Hardaway Jr. who between his two stints in New York, didn't really do anything of note in in the win column and put up a lot of shots that he probably didn't have any business taking, but also scored a lot of points, improved. He was much better in that second stint, um, by no means a star, but it, it did kind of pave the way for him to develop into what he's become with the Dallas Mavericks, which is a really a, a really impactful tertiary scorer. So, you know, if we're going to give credit to to Gallo for for becoming the player that he did elsewhere. Like I, I think that the two times that Hardaway went around in, in New York did help him grow into what he's become. Hardwood Knox listeners, have you ever heard of DealDash.com? It's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things you'd never expect at a price you'd never believe. They have over 1,000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at $0 and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that the auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, everyone else has 10 seconds to answer or the item is yours. If you go ahead and buy now, DealDash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign up on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use the offer code NOX or go to DealDash.fm slash NOX. That's deal-dash.fm slash Knox. D-E-A-L-D-A-S-H dot F-M slash Knox. You're, you're not going to catch any arguments from here at the bottom of the, of the Knicks top 10 ballot. I'm actually just going to instead ask you, are you able to take us to, what are we up to, number eight already? Number, t- number nine. We're up to number eight because Hardaway was number nine. Yeah, okay, so number we actually don't have a number eight because there's a two-way tie for number seven. Uh, so the first of the ones we'll cover there is Raymond Felton, uh, who was number eight on the fan ballot, number seven for me, and number six for you. And every time I think about Felton in like the historical context here, I, I remember the graphic, and I wish I could remember the outlet that put this out, but it was like the Knicks all-decade team, right? And it's like Raymond Felton at point. 
as like, wow, that is, that's bleak. And it's not like, we don't mean to hate on, on Felton too much, but like, that's not what you want as your, <laughs> your, your, your point guard of the decade. He had, it was, so they signed him in 2011 free agency, uh, 2010 free agency, and then they trade him at midseason in the Carmelo Anthony trade. He was having a good year, 17 and nine, uh, with 1.8 steals as well. He was only shooting 32.8% on threes, but he was actually having a pretty good year. And so that's the season I remember from him. And then when he comes back um, for 2012, 2013, has another good year. Hits 36% of his threes, averages 13.9 points and 5.5 assists per game. So he's relative to who the Knicks have had on their roster this decade. He absolutely belongs in the discussion right where he is. I think you could probably, if you wanted to, even make a case that he belongs, you know, at six or five, if you wanted to go that high. I, I think you could. And I think, like, in general, Raymond Felton throughout his career has seemed to get, like, a little bit too much shit just for having the physique of a, a bowling ball that hasn't worked out in a while. Well, it also um, seems like his disposition in Portland didn't help his reputation either. It definitely did not. But especially you said during... bowling ball, but he's, like, smaller, so maybe, like, a bocce ball. So that's what he looks like coming down the court is just like this barreling bocce ball because he could really get into defenses. He was just he he knows how to use the heft though. It's like it, it's it's similar to what we talked about in the past with like Nikola Jokic and Marcus All losing weight, and we question whether they're going to be as effective. Like Felton played at the right weight for himself because he knew how to use the heft, like to clear out space to create more lanes when he he backed smaller players down in the post and he was a consistently steady offensive player there's nothing wrong with that you know we've we've talked before about how not being noticed because you aren't making mistakes is sometimes a good thing but he did more than that he was a, a consistently good facilitator who never really forced the issue as a scorer he didn't turn the ball over he knew when to defer to to better and bigger teammates and he just didn't do much wrong of note and and when we're talking about New York basketball over the last decade, that's a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah, and and again, that uh, that season in 2010, 2011, before the Mellow trade, I know it became clear they desperately needed someone else, but it, it was fun. Like, he had the good chemistry going with, um, with Amari Stoudemire there, and it is funny that his two most successful seasons of the decade came in a Knicks uniform. So, you know, I guess you could make a case that was he maybe a little bit more valuable to in OKC team in 2017-2018, perhaps, but his role was just so much smaller. So I think he's right where he belongs. And like I said before, you could probably make a case to stick him a little bit higher. Who is yeah, his both, comrade at number seven, though? We, we both thought he was Sorry. higher than his comrade at number seven, um, which is Jeremy Lin, who was buoyed by a fifth-place finish in the fan voting. Um, he rose. He actually finished in every single spot on the ballot, which is interesting, um, including a first-place vote. Um, seems but a little excessive, but it seems a little excessive. I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that this is the lowest on the Vernus leaderboard anybody who's made one of our top tens has been, because he only played 940 minutes over 35 games for the Knicks, which puts him 60th in minutes played for the decade. And there is there's basically no objective case to have Jeremy Lin in the top ten, but at the same time, like. How can you possibly overlook the excitement that he brought to Madison Square Garden when everything started clicking? And for a dozen or so games, he started playing like a full-fledged superstar, just getting to the rim, finishing plays, knocking down step-back three-pointers, hitting game winners so coolly and calmly. 
it, it, it all clicked. It was obviously unsustainable. It didn't end up leading to any playoff success, but it was, it was unforgettable. And in a decade where I, I think so many of the most memorable moments that have involved the Knicks have stemmed from other teams and guys like Steph Curry dropping massive point totals in MSG, the fact that New York had something that everyone could coalesce around that led to books being written about this singular experience, that has to mean something here. It absolutely needs to. And so from when he re- from when he entered the rotation for good with that 25-point game against the then New Jersey Nets through just his end of the year because he had the knee injury that cost him uh, the tail end of the regular season and then all of the playoffs. He averaged 18.5 points, 7.7 assists, two steals. And what's funny is I just remember him being way more efficient than he actually was, 32.4% on threes. But during that stretch, you just had this feeling when he was shooting at that time that it was going to go in. And you remember some of the, the flashpoint moments of that stretch, the game against the Nets where it was like sort of his coming out party uh he dropped 38 points against Kobe and the Lakers and Kobe didn't even know who he was at the time and then my favorite moment is the the game winner he hits in Toronto where I think he like I've watched it so many times that now I'm second guessing everything I'm about to say but like he just the the bravado that he dribbles up the court with and just fires like this deep three doesn't straight away from the top of the key And it was just, you knew it was going in. I think Landry Fields at the time even said, why wouldn't it go in with the way that he's playing? So I have no qualms about putting him uh, in a tie for seventh. You and I both had him at eighth, I believe. And so you could even put him higher just because of what he meant to this decade. I, I think you could argue that stretch of basketball was the most exhilarating to be a Knicks fan of the decade because it was so unexpected. Even that 2012, 2013 squad, it had expectations um, not so lofty as what they came out to be, but the whole point of trading for Carmelo Anthony was that you could be in in that p- position to be one of the two or three best squads in the Eastern Conference. And so Jeremy Lin just comes out of absolutely nowhere, saves the Knicks season essentially during that stretch, it feels like, because they were just headed nowhere super quickly. Uh, so I I wouldn't have any issues if someone wanted to throw him. You can't put him number one, but if you wanted to put him like four just because of what he represented – I'm totally fine with that. And my hot take on this issue, maybe it's not hot, is that if he never really starts having those injuries, he ends up being a a very good NBA player. I would love to see an alternate universe in which he never suffers that initial knee injury with the Knicks. And I know he dealt with other stuff beforehand, but I'm just that point. What would have happened in the playoffs or something? No, they're not going to beat Miami. I totally know that. And I don't think that they would have been able to had time to like sort of scrap together a different matchup. But he was doing a lot of what he was doing when Melo and Stat were injured, too, during that stretch. And it would have been cool to try to see them coalesce together. We never got that true opportunity uh, because the Knicks didn't match that offer that came from Houston in restricted free agency. Still, again, I, I have no qualms about anyone who wants to argue that he needs to be even higher than this. I mean, Jeremy Lin went from being an undrafted point guard to signing a free agent contract with the Golden State Warriors and playing sparingly. He was assigned to the G League three different times before he was waived by the Warriors. He signed with the Rockets, who didn't have a role for him, so they cut him. He signed with the Knicks, who sent him to the Erie Bayhawks in the G League before his breakout. And within 60 on-court minutes, 
it was so obvious he was doing something special enough that he was a scheme altering player. Like opposing coaches were legitimately figuring out, like, do we want to play drop coverage against the pick and rolls he's going to throw out? Do we want to like ice him more? How do we how do we stop this guy from getting to the rim? All the while, he's a competent defender who's racking up steals and seems to understand where to go. It's like it was so out of nowhere that it feels like one of those flashbulb memories in recent NBA history, not just for the Knicks, that no one who was watching those games is going to forget about anytime soon. Also, what I think people, I don't know if they forget or always underestimate about his game, he was really good at getting to the foul line. If you just sort by Knicks players who logged 500 minutes or more this decade, he was fifth in free throw attempt rate and third among non-bigs. The only two ahead of him were Danilo Gallinari, number one among non-bigs, just thusly proving my point from before even more. And Chauncey Billups was was number two. He actually played even fewer games in New York, though, than than Jeremy Lin did. He had 21 appearances to Jeremy Lin's 35. Well, as we move forward in our rankings, we're going to go from an underrated foul drawer to a guy who sends a whole lot of guys to the free throw line. And that is Mitchell Robinson. Uh, he was seventh for the fans. He was sixth for me. He was seventh for you. He's been spectacular when he's on the floor, but both because the Knicks are, uh, let's be generous here, stubborn, and uh, and because he can't stop fouling people, he just hasn't played enough to really capitalize on what seems like just this unlimited potential. Right. He should be starting next year, and hopefully that will be the case. The on-off splits with him defensively are just absolutely wild, and he didn't really get his fouling issues too under control. I, I, this year, I think he went from looking at it right now. So he went from averaging 7.7 fouls per 100 possessions to 6.7 fouls per 100 possessions. I don't know if his demeanor on defense would change where he won't take as many chances if he's not coming off the bench uh, because he'll know that he'll be playing more minutes. But if you're going to average, you know, he's still around 5 fouls per 36 minutes. It's going to be tough to carve out a starting role in that that situation you'll at least be in foul trouble early if you're not gonna and then you'll of course have those uh just too many foul outs but I like what I do see from him overall on defense and it does feel like he's going to be one of those no I don't expect him to start shooting threes like we've seen in those in those videos but I do expect him to be one of those non-shooting bigs who isn't uh able to be run off the floor sort of like you know we saw the extreme with Rudy Gobert in Houston and I'm not I know that's the popular comparison I don't think Robinson will, will ever be on the same tier as Gobert but where you can pull Rudy Gobert outside the paint and he's not completely a deer in headlights and with Mitchell Robinson he has the length to kind of leave space between he and guys uh, that are going to try and take jumpers on him but he can also move really well on the perimeter too. And so if you just bake in a couple more years of experience, we maybe are talking about one of the more impactful defenders in the NBA. And he was tough to place because he's only two seasons into his career. Hasn't really played that much. Should have played more, but he also was probably the Knicks best prospect at this point. And I mean that with all due respect to, to RJ Barrett. And that's, you know, to say you're the best prospect of the Knicks franchise, that's not exactly like a small feat to accomplish. And so I could totally get, I could. I thought about putting him as high as five is where I'm getting at. I'm actually buying into his offensive upside a little more than you are. Like, I, I, I believe these workout videos that we're seeing. And granted, like we have to take anything that happens in these practice settings with a, a massive heaping of salt. But like his, his ball handling skills are, are kind of convincing. Just the fact that he is able to break down players from the perimeter. I, I'm not sure he's ever going to develop into a three-point shooter or even a long two shooter. Um, 
then again, like we've seen guys like Jonas Valanciunas completely morph their offensive game. And I feel like he he could eventually fill a similar role, but even around the rim, he's like what Deandre Jordan dreams of being. And that's no disrespect meant to Deandre Jordan. Who's been one of the best pick and roll finishers in the game for a while. But Robinson's athleticism is just off the charts. And he just, he seems to have that, that innate knack for angles around the basket, even when he isn't able to just hit hand to iron and, and throw down a dunk. Like 74.2% from the field is not easy to do, even if it's only on 5.6 shots per game that are all coming from close proximity to the basket. Generating those looks and being able to capitalize them, capitalize on them is, is difficult. And that alone draws so much defensive attention that I think it's going to make it easier for him to develop the other skills that haven't been there yet. The only thing I'll say for him offensively is I do wonder, I question whether he can expand his range when the primary indicator for looking at free throw percentage, he went from shooting 60% as a rookie to 56.8% as a sophomore. And so that's going to be something that needs to be monitored moving forward, especially because you don't expect him to all of a sudden have this floater or try taking threes next year. And so that's going to be the best indicator of what he can do offensively. I am encouraged that he's improved from that three to 10 foot range that he started to make more of those touch shots um, from slightly further distances. I think that's a good sign of growth for a guy who is still only 22 years old and does have so much untapped potential. I just, I, I, the only reason I really hesitate to buy into it totally is because he plays for the Knicks. Well, there's that. And then also his volume from that range diminished this season too. Right. And I don't mean that to sound like super pithy or anything. Like it's just, they have not shown that they can properly develop talents the ones that they have, they have tended to bury on the bench in favor of more established players who can try to expedite that rebuilding process, probably not in the most beneficial fashion. And I just, I don't want that to happen to him. I can, I can so easily see it, especially during a year where free agency is going to be so weird and there are such limited options. I can totally see the Knicks just being like, oh, we got to sign a veteran big man for $10 million per year. And then we're going to have to play him over Robinson. Sorry, you're going to get 22 minutes a game again. Yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what they do with all those team options and non-guarantees because if you end up bringing back even one of Taj Gibson and Bobby Portis, you still have Julius Randle there, and he just Robinson doesn't make sense alongside any of their traditional power forwards. And look, the end game here, or the expected end game, is that Mitchell Robinson ends up being in a trade package for someone they, they shouldn't be trading for. That's... I don't. I mean, there. I actually think there's a debate as to whether they should trade for CP three. I don't think you give up any of your cornerstone prospects in that deal. And by that, I mean Frank Nealakina and Frank Nealakina only. But I actually mean you don't give up Mitchell Robinson or RJ Barrett in that deal. But the expectation should be that that's what the Knicks are eventually going to do, whether it's a CP three trade or another one. They do always seem to be on this immediate, urgent timeline that they can never hit because instant turnarounds are hard, which is why they're not done so frequently. And I know fans, certain fans, a ton of fans, however many you want to say, will, will point to um, some of the things that, you know, Leon Rose has, hasn't really said much since he was hired as the team's president, but some of the language where it says that Frank Nielakina is going to be this long-term piece. I will believe everything about the Knicks following a more gradual timeline when I see it. There are certain franchises like the Charlotte Hornets that we, we use the phrase the mediocrity treadmill. For just like, you know, they're never going to be bad enough to get a great draft pick. They're never good enough to make any noise in the playoffs. And they seem to do everything to continue staying on that mediocrity treadmill. 
the Knicks have ramped the treadmill up to 30 miles an hour and just try to jump on it. And that doesn't work. Like that is not how you use a treadmill. And it can work like one out of every X times if you jump on and everything's perfect because yes, there are teams that do these overnight uh, rebuilds in free agency, but sometimes those don't always work out. Look at the Brooklyn Nets because they signed one of their players was injured. Then Kyrie got injured this season as well. They're still going to go to the playoffs probably, but when was the last time one of those did work? I mean, like uh, I think the, the most common example is the Boston Celtics who went from what? 25 wins in 2006, 2007 to a 66 win juggernaut in 2007, 2008 by acquiring both Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett over the off season. Who is, who's the Knicks Paul Pierce? Like that, it, it just doesn't work unless you have the pieces in place. And if you have the pieces in place, then you typically don't need to do the instant turnaround. I just, I, I would, I would question when the last time anything like that has actually worked without a star incumbent. Right. Or, and I mean, some of the teams were even good to begin with, like the Clippers getting Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, that made them instant contenders, but they were a playoff team before that. And it's the same thing with the Miami Heat. They had Dwayne Wade already. They weren't a great team, but I think the year before they signed, had the big three come together, they won 47 games. And so the Knicks are trying to go from like these 20 something win teams to these immediate contenders. And it's, it's hard, nigh impossible to complete. And it's going to take even LeBron going to the Lakers didn't change the tenor of that entire franchise for a year. They had to wait to get Anthony Davis. So uh, I get that perspective from you as well. I'd just like to apologize to the Boston Celtics. I said they went from 25 to 66 wins. It was 24 to 66. So their jump was even more impressive. Sports are back. And so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. Major League Baseball is finally kicking off, and there's no better place to start wagering than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on, all available 24-7. And with the return of sports, Bet Online sat down with former pro players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Horry. See what they had to say on what it'll be like playing without fans in a series they're calling Fandemic. Visit betonline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Um, speaking of impressive jumping, number five is J.R. Smith, uh, who was number five for both you and I and number six for the fans. He was so much more than just like this highlight-generating, meme-generating um fringe rotation player during his time in New York. He was legitimately a really good 3 and D guy. Yeah, and look, his this come, harkens back to the 2012-2013 season again. That was a sixth man of the year campaign. 80 games, all of which came off the bench. 18.1 points, 2.7 assists, shot 35.6% from three, uh, only 45.8% on twos. But the thing about him is that he was taking difficult jump shots. And I'm not saying that I'm going to praise him for that, but to have the type of efficiency that he did, it just could have been so much worse. And for him specifically, it has been so much worse in other seasons. I mean, J.R. Smith is one of those few players that is legitimately better with 14 hands in his face. <laughs> That's And there's probably math to back that up, let's be honest. We don't have it, but there's got to be numbers to, to back that up. So he's... He's definitely this enigma when you look at him and watch him, excuse me, with his shot selection. Uh, but he's still, he's that guy who can, he's a role player who could get you the square one buckets, but he could also work off other ball dominant stars as we saw with the Knicks. And we've seen it. He became less ball dominant when he would, when he played for the, for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And so I don't want to say that his 
jersey needs to be retired, but he was just a solid role player for the most part during his time in New York. And the way it came to an end uh, during the 2014-2015 season, like, yeah, they were clearly out on him by them, and he was probably having his worst season um, with the Knicks. That you could, Maybe you could make the case that 2011-2012 was a little bit worse for him. But, but just for the most part, if you're looking for a role player who plays the way that he does, there's going to be higher variance outcomes in their roles. And I think his time in New York um, on the floor was just overwhelmingly positive in that regard. And I think this is where it starts to get into territory and maybe even with Mitchell Robinson that you're just comfortable with where it's like, Oh, okay. His name coming up in a decade rankings like this, that that's perfectly fine. Jared Smith has played 15 NBA seasons. How many of those has his team not been better with him on the floor? Is this my trivia for this pod? Sure. I'm going to say three. Is that correct? Nailed it. That's I, exactly correct. Now, which seasons were they? That's not no. happening. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's, that's too <laughs> difficult. Uh, they're his first two seasons in the league with New Orleans, um, and then the 2017-18 season with Cleveland, which was his age 32 campaign. But yeah, each, each of the three seasons, each of the four, three and a half seasons that he spent with the Knicks, they were better with him on the floor. And that's been consistent throughout because as much as he gets knocked for the inexplicable decisions, forgetting what the score is in a, in a key playoff moment, all of those things, like he tends to, to understand how to make his team better. Uh, we, we saw that really come to a head in 2013-14 where he's coming off that sixth man of the year season and all of a sudden the Knicks are throwing him in the starting lineup and asking him to handle the ball less, to shoot the ball less. He did it. He upped his assist numbers. He dropped his turnover numbers. He became even more efficient from the three-point arc. Just He's always been one of those guys who maybe were just blinded by the athleticism and rec- recklessness with which, he, which I can't use my words, and recklessness with which he plays, but it tends to work. Maybe tends to work. I, yeah, I, I, you're actually right. It feels like because he has this reputation as such a wild card, that that almost feels like a hot take, but it's really not because he was a wild card. But I think because his highs could be so high and what he could do when he would no, no, no like joke intended there either with phrasing uh, because of what he could do when he was at his very best, it was almost worth it to go through for most of his career to kind of go through that roller coaster process. I think you needed to be on the right team though, where that type of performance uh, particularly when he's older, that's not going to work on a rebuilding squad. But on a contender that that has some depth and can withstand um, poorer performances from him, to have that guy who can just sort of explode uh, can really help you. I was surprised that the fans only had J.R. Smith at sixth just because of the highlights and, and the positive memories that he did provide for that franchise. I think I was more surprised, though, that Kristaps Porzingis checked in at number two for the fans, oh, wow. which... Still only got him to number four in the composite rankings because you and I both had him at number four. Just given the ACL injury and the way the exit happened, um, the trade that sent him to the Dallas Mavericks just out of the blue. You know, it, it didn't even seem like he was on the trade block and the next morning he was a member of the Mavericks. Um, as, as incredible as he was during his three years in New York and, and the role that he was growing into as that rim protecting menace, the seven foot three, three point shooter. Um, when everything clicked, he was so obviously special, but just given how that exit took place, 
I, I was shocked that he still got enough credit to be number two on the fan vote. It doesn't really surprise me because of what he sort of represented for the for the franchise, just that fortunes-turning prospect. They really didn't have since Patrick Ewing at the time because they were so embedded in the culture of trying to get other teams as players rather than develop their own. He was elected into one All-Star game, but he spent three seasons there. But he, he seemed like he was, you know, particularly during the, his latter two seasons, he missed a ton of time. He had the ACL injury. To call him the second best player of the decade feels, I, I consider putting him at, at three, to be honest with you. It does feel a little bit like a stretch, but I, I get it looking at just on the court. I do think, though, that you point out correctly, the way he left, the, the circumstances under with, which he left have to be factored in here. And I don't even know if it was so out of the blue because it was kind of this known thing in New York that he was unhappy or wasn't thrilled with the th- franchise. I don't know how much Carmelo Anthony leaving actually played into that because he really seemed to take to Melo, um, but he didn't feel like he was being treated like a star, and they eventually just gave in, and the trade did seem like it came together quickly where they didn't pull the rest of the league for long enough because there was even rumors um, that the Knicks were considering, I think they were considering trading him, was it around the 2016 draft or the 2017 draft because he skipped out on his exit meeting with with Phil Jackson. So I think that was 2017. Yeah, so just all the circumstances there are just so murky. And if people factored in the rape allegations as well with him, I'm not going to move him lower. I'm not going to begrudge that, certainly, either. But he was, on the court, someone who I, I, I think people who believe that he could win Defensive Player of the Year, and maybe I was one of them at a certain juncture, was taking it too far. But I think most be, of us were those someones, honestly. But he was such a plus defender when you looked at what he could do because he could move pretty well on the defensive end and then he was just this more than a nuisance around the rim he was just like this shot wet blanket just absorbing a ton of things and then what he could do on offense where you could see um he's going to be this this floor spacer he'll work within the spread pick and roll is there going to be more that he'll have to offer maybe not necessarily in the post and I think we've seen that in Dallas he struggled there but to just work off the dribble the ceiling was so high to where it was someone who would be worth a max extension investment, someone who might be one of the 20, 25 best players in the game, if not better than that as an absolute pinnacle. And so that symbolic nature of, of what he represented on the court for them, I can see why fans would have placed him even higher. But when you just factor in, maybe you can't say availability just because looking at some of the other people we put on this list, but the circumstances under which he left and then the teams with that he played for, you know, they, they weren't these great teams to begin with. I, I think that all, all matters and is all relative to this discussion, particularly when you're going to look at who's actually in front of him, for us anyway. My biggest qualm with Porzingis' game when he was in New York was just that he didn't understand passing. There were so many possessions where he just totally commandeered the ball the entire shot clock and then forced up a hero shot, just would look off open teammates, would work into double teams, um, without realizing where his kickout passes were. But at the same time, like he also had like a little bit of Carmelo Anthony, LaMarcus Aldridge to his game, where he was just he was a really good face-up shooter from those long two zones. And and there's value in that. You know, as much as we knock those long two pointers and, and hope the players can take a step behind the three-point arc, which he often did. You know, during his three seasons in New York, he shot 44.1% between 10 and 16 feet. He shot 41.5% from beyond 16 feet, but inside the three-point arc. There's value in that, just forcing defenses to cover that because no one was big enough to to block his shot from those from those areas. I think that he 
took them too often. He he bought into the idea of him being a high scoring threat a little too often, and that held him back and maybe hindered some of the development of his less notable teammates. But he was really good in so many areas, not all of which he gets credit for. I will say that I think if you have a team that doesn't put Derrick Rose, Joakim Noah, and Carmelo Anthony around him during his sophomore season, that he probably develops as a passer better. And just looking at the personnel they put around him in general during his three seasons there, and then in contrast to what's happened in Dallas this year, he started making better reads with the ball. When you put sensible personnel around Kristaps Porzingis, it's, I think he'll have room, he has the bandwidth to do more things than Knicks never gave him that leeway. That will be my one defense of him. Which is fair. Which is fair. It, it, it is also interesting how so many of the best Knicks players have been big men over the last decade. I say that because we've already talked about Mitchell Robinson. We just talked about Kristaps Porzingis. And I kind of want to cover these next two together because it's hard to separate them. Um, not because they're these intertwined legacies and players, but just it, it was difficult to differentiate between the two um, on our ballots. And and that's Tyson Chandler, who checked in at number three. He finished fourth for the fans. He was third for both of us. And Amari Stoudemire, who was third for the fans and second for both of us, which does push him just ahead to the number two spot in our composite rankings. What what made you put Stat ahead of Tyson Chandler? I think the 2010 free agency decision and then that ensuing season to where he had claimed the Knicks were back, and they, they were, in a sense, and just some of the moments he had, the 30-point game streak, um, the game winner that wasn't against the Celtics. I actually remember back when I could call myself a, a loyal Knicks fan, like pumping my fist to the point that my then-girlfriend, like I almost clocked her in the jaw completely on accident. Uh, I just remember jumping up because it was just so exciting. And I do think he deserves credit for that because does Melo want to go to New York if Stoudemire isn't there? I honestly don't know. Maybe he still does, but, uh, but, but maybe not. And so he gave the Knicks a winning timeline and it proved to be a flawed one. And then he deals with the injuries thereafter. He's also not a great fit alongside Mello. And then it got to this point where they tried bringing him off the bench. They were trying all these different things. His, the game passed him by a ton as well, as we saw. And that happened in, in real time in New York. If he never has those injuries, maybe that slows down the, the devolution, but just given what he did on offense, the shots he lived on, the type of shots he liked to take, um, I, he might've always been, been doomed to a, a similar fate though. He was one of the best rim-running bigs at one point, like someone you could really just trust to devastate out of the pick-and-roll. No, we didn't have Steve Nash tossing him passes in New York, but could we We never really got to see a ton of the mellow stat pick-and-rolls, and that's something that in theory could have worked. And so I gave him number two for that. The, the body of work is also just larger, so you can count the thereness as well, but the significance of his decision to come to New York. And Tyson Chandler probably could have been put lower when you're looking at his sample, but Defensive Player of the Year and just one of the better decisions that they've actually made uh, during this decade was was signing him for what uh, he did for that team. And then just another player where it's like he's he lived through. He wasn't there that long, but he lived through all these different versions of the Knicks. And he obviously didn't finish that that contract there. He, they flipped into Dallas in 2014. I think that was the last year of his deal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was. So... Uh, just, I'd be curious to see if they had actually put like more of a winning situation type roster around him, the type of indent he would have been able to make. But he was sort of a culture setter, definitely on the court. Uh, not not known for doing that as much, I think, off the court, but just on the court and what he could do defensively. And again, winning the Defensive Player of the Year in 2011-2012 was a big freaking deal. 
I wish that the first thing we thought of with Amari Stoudemire in New York wasn't injuries, but it's like that that's how it has to be just because of the bulging disc in his back during the 2011, 12 season, punching the box containing a fire extinguisher and suffering a hand laceration in game two of the opening round of the 2012 playoffs against the Miami heat, all the knee trouble, all the back issues. And it just, it contributed to a decline that was so much swifter than anyone could have anticipated when he signed that five-year, $100 million deal that really could have been reasonable. It's, it's so easy to forget that during his first season in New York, 2010-11, also the first season um, in the decade that we're looking at here, he finished ninth in MVP voting. He was, he was that good. And then the injuries struck. Um, so I, I really struggled with the decision to have him above Tyson Chandler because even though the sample is larger and he did more, we associate Tyson Chandler more with winning than we do with him because he, as you mentioned, he was a defensive player of the year. He made such important contributions to the most successful Knicks team of the decade. He was there when it counted. Um, I, I gave Stoudemire the bump just because he was obviously the more talented player and represented a time when the Knicks could land a marquee free agent, but it was, it was a really tough decision. Yeah, that wasn't, that, that was a tough call by any stretch. And look, I grappled with, this sort of Porzingis, Chandler, Stoudemire, S- Smith, Robinson, like this whole section. I know, I always knew we knew who was going to be number one going in. We always yeah. we always knew that. Uh, but I think you could probably justify, maybe with the exception of Smith and Robinson. So maybe it's more of the KP Chandler Stoudemire trio was tough. You probably could justify any given order if you really wanted to. I, I agree with that. But yeah, I mean Carmelo Anthony always had to be number one. That was the only certainty on these ballots. And it didn't always work out that way. We actually had one, two, we had four different players receive first place votes. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that three of them were like pseudo joke ballots. Um, one was Jeremy Lin, one was Pablo Prigioni, and one was Frank Natalikina. Um, none of those players really have any justification to be a to be above Carmelo Anthony. Who I don't know. Was, Neil Akeen is on off defensive splits. I would just like to point out or among the best here we go in again. the NBA over his Here career, we go again. So. Here we go again. But I mean, if you look at the thereness factor alone, Melo has played more minutes over the last decade for the Knicks than any two players combined. He's first place at in, in 14,813 minutes. Stoudemire and Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, combined for just over 14,000. Um, that alone gets him in, in, in consideration, but, but so too does just how ridiculously good he was during his peak years. I mean, as talented a scorer as he was with the Denver Nuggets, he probably played his best basketball early in his New York career and pushed the franchise to heights that it hadn't seen in a while and, and has not seen since. So if you look at the Knicks' top players in value over replacement player, he is first with 20. And then second is Tyson Chandler, J.R. Smith, Kristaps, and Amari Stoudemire. Sixth is Kyle O'Quinn. If you combine all of those five players together, spots two through six, you have about Mello's Vorp. So he basically added the same value as the Knicks' second through sixth best player by Vorp. That's not an end-all be-all by any stretch, but that you talk about lopsided. And the thing to really look at here. For me, because we all know what Melo was capable of with the scoring, there are two things that stand out. is The the manner in which he forced his way to New York really ended up hurting the team. It's not his fault that James Dolan is a buffoon and 
was negotiating against himself at this point. He was the person who insisted on having Donnie Walsh include more players in there. And I'm fully aware that Gallinari always would have been jettisoned in that deal. I feel like he could have held a firmer stance knowing that he... I understood that the lockout was coming and that he wanted to get his extension. I totally under, understand all that. But I feel like he probably... If you were going to force a trade to a team, like do it in a way that you know is not going to gut the roster. And if you were more publicly... Uh, made it clear that you were going to sign with the Knicks in free agency anyway. That's something that maybe Anthony Davis aired with um, during the Pelicans thing, is that he wasn't as open about it. At the same time, it was such common knowledge that he was only wanted to go to the Knicks that this is more on the Knicks than him. So that's really my point there, is to probably blame, not probably, definitely blame the Knicks more than Melo. The, the thing that you can actually blame Melo for is just not wanting to play power forward as often. The Knicks wasted the best version of Carmelo Anthony they ever had was actually in 2013-2014, I believe. And he played a majority of minutes at power forward there. So he was always resistant to that. He's resistant to it now. He's even talking about how excited he is to be moved back to the three with the Blazers. I'm just not a big fan of positions at this point anyway. And to me, power forward is just so similar to three at this point. When you look at the type of personnel that plays there, it shouldn't matter. But if he was more willing to embrace that style, which is something that D'Antoni would have gotten him to quicker. Maybe that's another talking point for this, is how he didn't really want to embrace Mike D'Antoni early on, and that actually might have been a really good coach for him. So those are the things that I remember. There does seem to be a, at least a sliver, a modicum of squandered potential with Melo on the Knicks, and they're both equally culpable. I will blame the team far more than I blame the player because it's your job as the team to install the right people that will get the right buy-in from the player and maybe not give him too much power, but I'm not going to sit here and, you know, make, you know, absolve Melo of all the problems either, but I also will say that it doesn't seem like, it never seemed like he was as much as a cancer as he was portrayed by by some people because his teammates really did seem to embrace him, especially the younger ones later on in his tenure with the Knicks. And so what I would like to see if we're going to play the alternate universe card is what just happens if you take, you know, 2013, 2012-2013, 2013-2014 Mellow, those seasons, and like, let's just extrapolate that. Uh, are the Knicks, do they have a quicker path back to the playoffs? Does, does something different happen? But this might just be a thing for um, his entire career. What if he was willing to play power forward right away when Mike D'Antoni was still there? I just, I don't have much to add to that since you did such a thorough and, and, and great job covering all of that. I just, I like the symmetry that we began this, this episode talking about the Knicks' unending desire to add power forwards and finished with Mello's refusal to, pay, to play power forward. And the only other thing that I, I really want to add is to anyone who doesn't have Carmelo Anthony in first place for the last decade of Knicks basketball, do you know what he would probably say to them? Because I do. What would he say? He would probably call them a glazed donut face ass. One of the best tweets of all time by them. One of the player. best tweets Still of all time. Today, Still alive today. Still alive today. December 31st, 2013. Shout out to Carmelo Anthony for that. That might be his finest moment as a Nick. And look, he had great moments as a Nick. That game, what did he drop against the Hornets? Was that the 60-point game? I can't even remember what that was at that point, but like he was, I mean, well, actually one of the other iconic moments for him is getting blocked by Roy Hibbert at the rim. So that's, <laughs> that's like one of my favorite, it like, it guts me to look at, but that's actually one of the, like the best still shot photos uh, for, that I've seen from the NBA in, in recent memory. But he had great moments with the Knicks and he had the 62 point game in uh, against the Hornets. Like those, when he got hot or the Easter game against the Bulls, I think that was 2012 where he hits those two threes to just win it all. Um, but he was really good for this team. I don't think they ever optimized him 
um, the way that he needed to be. 2012-2013 is probably the closest they came to surrounding him with the, the right personalities. And then 2013-2014 is probably the the closest they came to using him in the best fashion. So if you would have combined just the the circumstances on, of those two seasons, you have the perfect version of Melo. And then the Knicks never got anywhere close to that, though. It was those two seasons were just separate and still missing elements. He definitely needed younger teammates around him um, towards the tail end of that 2013 season, more playoff-proof guys. And then 2013-2014, he just didn't have the – I mean, he didn't have the talent either around him, but there wasn't also the the requisite supplementary leadership for him either. And and you can say that's on Melo, making him a flawed player, but you invested in him. That's the decision you made. As the team, you need to make sure that you're surrounding him with the right type of roster and supporting cast, and the Knicks barely ever, if ever, actually did that. I, I don't like that NBA conversations often operate in extremes wherein you're either a great defender or you're an awful defender um, or, or you're a great shooter or a terrible shooter. It all it seems like so many conversations tend to veer towards the, those polar opposites. But I'm, I'm going to ask you to engage in, in that kind of answer here. Was, was his time in New York a success or not? That's a really good question. I it was in reality, it's on the fence, right? And and I I think we can all acknowledge that. I'm I'm asking you to come down on one side of that fence. I would say no, because you didn't trade for him with the intention of making three playoff berths in what was it seven years? I think is what it ended up being. I'm trying to double check myself here, you made three, yeah, just three playoff berths, and one of those came during a partial season that he was there. So. That's just that's a failure. It's a failure on both Mello and the team, more so the team to me, but I don't know that you can constitute it as a success. Yes, it gave the Knicks a marquee player around which to build, but they never properly did that. Maybe they did it once, and that's just that's not enough when we're talking about six plus seasons. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, my answer would also be that it, it was more of a failure than a success. But as soon as we allow any sort of nuance to enter into that question, I don't think it was Carmelo Anthony who was a failure. That that distinction's important. The Knicks failed him, which made his time there a failure. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Ready for some honorable mentions? Yes, this should get very interesting. <laughs> there, There are a lot of them. So, outside of the top 10 in the fan vote, as we always go through at the end, we had Pablo Prigioni at 11, Frank Natilakina tied with Jason Kidd at 12, Steve Novak at 14, a tie between Derek Rose and R.J. Barrett at 15, Danilo Gallinari at 17, Landry Fields at 18, a tie between Chauncey Billups, Ennis Cantor, Kevin Knox, Marcus Morris Sr. at 19. 23rd, we have a tie between Andrea Bargnani, Courtney Lee, David Lee, Julius Randle, and Ronnie Turioff. At 28, we have Alonzo Trier, Lance Thomas, Markeith Morris, who never played for the Knicks, and Michael Beasley. At 32, we had Jared Jeffries, Robin Lopez, Kyle O'Quinn. Way too low for O'Quinn. At 35, we had Jose Calderon and Wilson Chandler. At 37, we had Kenyon Martin, Ron Baker, Trey Burke, and Billy Hernan Gomez. Wow. That is quite the list. 40 different players. I'm actually surprised. 39 of which appeared for the Knicks. I'm I'm actually shocked there was only 13 players to appear in the top 10. Yeah, yeah, it it did seem like it could go a lot more directions. And I guess it was actually more than 40 because Allen Houston, Zion Williamson, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant all appeared as well. 
We just deleted those ballots. Well, look, actually playing for the we nation have is that power. Matters. Yes, we have that power. In the interest of getting us out of here in under an hour for a change, though, uh, please, please, pretty please, with sugar on top, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're consuming your podcasts. Even if you're not getting it from iTunes, that is the best way to help us out. Please go throw us a five-star rating. Write a review. Those help a ton as well. Even if you have constructive criticism, we, we welcome it. We will be checking it. Um, so continue to keep doing that. Shoutouts on Twitter are appreciated. Retweeting our promos, telling friends, family members, acquaintances, random people on social media about us. That helps too. Whatever we can do to build up the community that we have built here, which we both very much appreciate. Also, please follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can follow our YouTube channel as well, youtube.com. Search Hardwood Knox, and we will be right there. Until next time, we leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the Knicks legend for this decade, fan favorite, post-up machine, Aaron Aflalo. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.